Welcome to the study of God's Word with pastor and author Ed Taylor, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, here's Pastor Ed to take us into our study. Amen. Amen. Take your Bibles, open them to Acts chapter 6 as we start a new chapter. Acts chapter 6. And I've entitled our Bible study today, Growing Churches Require Growing Godly Leaders. That's what we learn here in Acts chapter 6. Growing churches require growing godly leaders. It's a sweet time in the life of the church here. It's about a few months old. Thousands upon thousands of people are being saved, born again, and Jewish believers embracing their Messiah. And with growth, we learn that there's opposition, right? Anytime there's progress, there's going to be opposition. And the church is making great progress. But they're also dealing with all sorts of things. They've got outside persecutions. They've got inward hypocrisy. Then there's more outside persecution. And now a problem arises, a problem of complaining and a problem of potential division that needs the attention of the spiritual leadership right away. So notice with me in verse 1 of Acts chapter 6, it says, Now in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a murmuring against the Hebrews by the Hellenists, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So here's the church that Jesus Christ himself is building. Remember we learn in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18 that Jesus committed to build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And yet, even though the gates of Hades will not prevail against it, it'll try. The demonic realm, our flesh, will come against the church to want to defeat it and destroy it. And remember, if the enemy can't defeat you, and if the enemy can't destroy you, he'll distract you. And this is a moment of great distraction that requires good, godly leadership. Now, before we get into the text, I want to introduce to you and remind you of that phrase, now, in those days. Let's just ask and answer the question, what days? Well, these are amazing days in the early church. These are amazing days of explosive love, care, and concern. There is, these are amazing days of explosive growth, numerically, as many people are coming to know Christ, open doors for the gospel. I mean, literally open doors as the Holy Spirit, as God sends an angel to break out the apostles from jail and open the doors and allow them to go back to the temple area and preach the gospel. And so there's this sense of helping and sharing and great expectation for God to move in miraculous ways. There, there, this is a time of addition to the church. As we saw with Ananias and Sapphira, a time of subtraction from the church. And now in chapter 6, in five short chapters now, we find ourselves in a place of multiplication. Rapid growth, you could say. Rapid growth in the early church. And it's true, as we see here, that church growth is a wonderful thing, but it comes with constant challenges and constant changes, constant challenges. Whenever the church is growing, there will be great difficulties coming with that growth. And that makes sense, even though not everybody likes it. Not everybody likes to see constant change and constant challenge, but it's the way it goes. This is how it is. This is normal. 
I want to show you something. Would you hold your places in Acts? Turn back to Proverbs chapter 14. Proverbs chapter 14. I really want you to see this in your own Bible. I want you to mark it. I want you to associate it with church growth. It's a very important principle that we learn here in Proverbs chapter 14. I draw your attention when you get there to verse 4. Proverbs 14, 4. I'm actually going to read it to you from the New Living Translation, where it says, Without oxen, a stable stays clean, but you need a strong ox for a large harvest. To which many people say, what in the world does that have to do with church growth? Oxen and oxes and stables. Well, there's a principle here. If you want a clean stable, then don't put any oxen in there. But if you begin to put oxen in your stable, then you have to understand something. Oxen do something on a regular basis. They eat, they drink, and they deal with that. And I don't need to explain to you what this is saying, but a stable gets dirty when there are oxen in there. So what that means is, is if you put more oxen in, it will get more dirty. That principle is laid out for us in the church. You want a clean church? You want a church without problems? You want a church without issues? You want a church without murmuring and complaining? Then there's one way to have that. Nobody can be here. Nobody can be here. But once you gather people together, and as it was with church growth, when you gather a lot of people together, then like a stable, the church is going to be messy. And it's going to be filled with issues, especially for a church like ours that has a great heart to cooperate with the God of the harvest, who has a heart for the lost. When we are in a gathering like this and there are people that don't know Jesus, there are people that have a new believing faith in Jesus, there are people that have never been serious about discipleship, it's just going to be messy. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be hard. Because God doesn't change people right away in their behaviors. Oh, it's true that when a person is born again, that they are changed on the inside out, they become new creations. But the whole life that they lived up to that point doesn't change overnight. There's a Bible word for that. It's called the sanctification process of God. Where God, he will save you with justification. He will have a right standing with God. But then the process of change takes time. And so people come in with a lot of baggage. Even as I reflect upon my own life, when I walked into a church very similar to this, and I was born again, I brought a lot of years of baggage with me. A lot of bad habits. A lot of things that even now God is still changing in my life. Now with that, the stable being dirty, that, that's not really happy because it stinks and it's hard. You got to constantly clean, constantly clean. That, that's difficult. Well, now add to that constant change and adaptation to what's happening in the, in the current culture. Being able to relate to people with the timeless scripture I think it was Pastor Greg Laurie, I know that, but he actually got it, I think, from D.L. Moody when he taught that the gospel message never changes. And to that I say amen. But the methodologies of delivering it, you know, of course they change. Things change, cultures change, language changes. And so we need to be able to relate the timeless truths of the scripture with the culture. And with, with a growing church, changes come. Now, you know, if we were asked a little survey, I'm sure a lot of us would go, I don't have any problem with change. I don't have any problem with change, Ed. Bring it on. But here's the thing what you probably are saying. 
what you're probably saying, or at least thinking is, I don't have much problem with change if I'm the one that gets to initiate the change. Like if I initiate change, then I'm a lot more comfortable with it. It probably implies you thought about it, planned about it, prayed about it, and so then change comes, and you know, it's a little discomforting, and it's a little fearful. You're not sure what the future holds, but because you initiated it, it gives you a greater comfort level than changes that are initiated for you or upon you. Not a big fan of that. And, and being a part of a large growing church, a lot of the changes you experience were made in a prayer meeting or made in a leadership meeting or made among the board or the elders or the pastoral team. And we're just here to deliver those changes. And you're like, okay, well, I don't know. I don't think I like that. I'm not sure. I'm not. And you, before you know it, there's a spiritual warfare that distracts you from you personally seeking the Lord and going along with what God is desiring. I remember a lot of these quotes I, I have written in my notes came to us when we were back many years ago. You know, this church started many years ago, 22 years ago, with about 30 adults actually down the street uh, in a little Baptist church down on Hampton in a neighborhood there. From that Baptist church in Hampton, we moved up into the school that's back in this neighborhood for seven years. We met there, but the church started just with 30 adults, about 30 adults, and in those early days, we would have people visit, come and go, back in the school, come and go. And people would actually say, you know, Pastor Ed, Pastor Ed, I don't want this church to get big. And they would say it straight up. And I quote, I don't want this church to get big. And I remember looking at them and go, I don't know what God's going to do with this church, but that desire is not from the Lord. Because I'm telling you right now, God wants his church to be big. He wants his church to be big. Not necessarily how you might be thinking in the size of the church, because there's all sorts of sizes of churches. God's doing all kinds of things in all kinds of communities. That's not it. But the church at large, Jesus died for the church to grow. Because a growing church means people are getting saved and lives are being changed. And I think another one I wrote down, it says, I hope we stay the same size forever. Well, that ain't going to happen because sometimes churches grow, sometimes they contract, but we will not stay the same size forever. And you think about what that's really saying and communicating. What it's saying and communicating is, I never want to see another person born again in this church because I'm comfortable and I like it the way it is. And I just got to the place where I like this place and I don't ever want it to change. I don't want any oxen. No more oxen. I'm the last ox. Which is silly. But it's a normal feeling. Churches that have once thrived have died because of that attitude. Where it all becomes really self-centered. And I'm grateful to be a part of church not only Church, a church that has grown, but a church that continues to grow. Because I believe what God has taught us, that he has a heart to reach the lost of this world. And as long as there are lost people getting saved, the church of Jesus Christ is going to grow. And I believe because of our vision and our heart, what God has put us in this community for, we're going to continue to grow because our heart is to reach the lost, to be used of the Lord. We, we, our goal is not, and you have to understand something, our goal is not to grow a church. That's not my goal as a pastor or a leadership. It's not our goal to grow a church. It's not our goal to shrink a church. Our goal is to be faithful, to teach the Bible verse by verse, to take you through the whole counsel of God from Genesis to Revelation, 
to, to have us living out our spiritual gifts, doing what God has called us to do, to be open, to be led and empowered by the Holy Spirit, not to adopt you know, these church growth methods and books on how to grow. No, not, none, of that, none, of that, none of that concerns us. But I do know this. When you teach the Bible and the church is fed well, healthy sheep reproduce healthy sheep. You, you automatically want to go and share and love and serve just like they are here in Acts chapter 6. That our goal as a church is to apply the principles found in the Bible to the best of our ability in the 21st century. To see what was happening in the book of Acts and apply that principle. And there's quite a few, even in these few verses, that we apply in the leadership of this church. Don't fall into the trap of not liking change. Embrace it. Enjoy it. Don't fight it. Don't start in the spirit like the Bible says and then try to finish in the flesh either. But continue on in the spirit, trusting him. Because if it's a genuine work of God, then growth is inevitable. You can expect it. You can expect it in your church, but let's bring it down one more notch personally. If the salvation experience that you have, the confession of your sin, if you truly believe that you were born again, then your own spiritual growth is inevitable. God is going to want to grow you up. You're going to continue to grow in God's grace. You're going to add to your faith, as Peter taught us. So even in your own life, there's going to be a lot of challenges and a lot of changes because God is growing you up personally because you are the church. And then collectively, that's why we have to just be patient with one another, church. Everybody's at a different stage in their personal walk with Christ. You know that. Everybody's different. They're at a different place. That's something you might have experienced 20 years ago. They're just now experiencing. And we just need to step back and allow the Spirit of God to do what He wills with us. But you can count on growth, and you can count on challenges, and you can count on difficulty. As God's Word is taught and preached, love will multiply, grace will abound, and listen, God will lead the lost to His true lighthouse of hope, a fellowship family that loves Him and loves the people that walk through the doors loves the people in our community. God will lead his lost. He will lead the lost in this world to a lighthouse of hope. But he'll also lead his sheep. He'll also lead his sheep to a place where they'll be well taken care of, where the fellowship family they're a part of will be cared for. You can jot it down in Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 15. God says this through the prophet. He says, and I will give you shepherds according to my heart, who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. And that's my responsibility as a pastor here, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, to give you the whole counsel of God, to laugh together, to cry together, to stir up perhaps frustration or anger in you. Oh, I don't like, don't say that to me, pastor. Uh, don't make it about pastor. Just open your Bible and read us what it says. Remember, we had just a couple weeks ago talking about hypocrisy. I can't believe it. Why are you calling me a hypocrite? I'm not calling you a hypocrite, but it sounds like that's something you probably need to deal with. If it's coming up in your heart and mind, God is surfacing it and allowing the Lord to then submit to that. He's like, man, that's challenging to hear such a word. Yes, it is, because God wants you to grow up. Which reminds us today, the best posture and position that you can have in a large growing church 
is that not only, number one, you walk in the Spirit, but number two, you are ready for a new work of God. That you actually pray for it. You actually ask God to prep you and prepare you for whatever new thing's coming, whatever new opportunity. And I have to say, we're a part of a church where, man, you are ready. I think of what we celebrated today, when in just a moment's time, I mean, just a moment's time with the things happening with Russia and Ukraine, just a moment's time, we announce this, we have a trip here, and we say, hey, if you want to support this, and then money floods in and it goes right back out, and you are able then to taste the tangible work of the Holy Spirit. That's a big change. So you're coming to worship, you're going to raise your hand. We don't know what's happening in the global economy. We can all look at it. We can, the, the geopolitical issues of the world, and we can all complain about it, be upset about it, or we can do something about it. And when you do something about it, look what happens. The Lord moves and he acts. And we get to partner with even other ministries that are doing such a thing. You need to be ready. Let, let me show you what I mean. Let Jesus put it better than this. Turn over to Luke's gospel, chapter five. I'll show you exactly what I mean. When Jesus comes on the scene, his teaching was, was revolutionary, unfortunately, as he's expressing the heart of, of God as being God in human flesh. He's expressing his own heart for those religious elite that had left the heart of God. And as he explains, he gives us a very encouraging reminder about readiness. Luke chapter 5, I draw your attention to verse 36. It says, he spoke a parable to them. No one puts a piece from a new garment on an old one. Otherwise, the new makes a tear, and also the piece that was taken out of the new does not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine will be burst, and the wineskins will be spilled, and the wineskins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Now, Jesus, of course, is talking about the, the revelation of the fullness of the new covenant and the resistance of the religious elite, the newness of the new covenant, new wine, and the resistance of the religious elite are old wineskins. And because they don't want to take it, because they don't want to listen, because they don't want the status quo change, because they don't want to change, they don't want to lose their power, all of that and more, they can't receive it because this is going to bust up everything that they have. Jesus didn't come to destroy, he came to fulfill. He didn't come up to sew a ripped garment, the traditions, the rules, and the legalisms. He came to do a new work. The Pharisees had become so dry and inflexible and rigid. Jesus came to bring the new and final covenant. Now, he uses a familiar illustration for those in the first century, not so familiar for us. We use plastic and glass and what would be containers for wine today. But in the ancient days, they used a leather pouch with a small top that could be, that could be closed. And in the leather pouch, if it was new and new wine was in it, as it continued to ferment, it could expand and it could expand. But after many uses, the wineskin became old and you couldn't put new wine in it anymore because it would explode and both would be lost. You'd lose the wineskin and you'd lose the wine. Now, again, you have to step out of your culture for a second and into the first century because in our culture, if we had an old wineskin, we'd probably throw it away and buy a new one. It's such a disposable culture that we're in, but not so for them. If they would have an old wineskin, you know what they would do? With the use of water and oil, both picture and symbolic in the scriptures of the Holy Spirit, 
They would take with, want, with water and oil and recondition the old wineskin so that it could be used again to hold new wine. And I find that that is the case for us, that through the Spirit, the water of the Word, the Spirit of God, He too can recondition you for a new work that God is doing today. This is a great problem in the church at large. There is a resistance to what God is doing new. I think of one example. I mean, I could think of many examples, but let me, think of, let me share with you one of them. It is what's known now as the metaverse. And in the metaverse, people put goggles on and they live in a virtual reality, and that's how they spend their days. And yeah, maybe you wouldn't do that. Maybe you would do that. But I'll tell you what some pastors are doing. They are setting up churches in the metaverse. They are having service in this new virtual world known as the metaverse. And you know what? There are literal people responding to the gospel because, you know, the metaverse is one place, but it's filled with real people with goggles on their head. And in order to reach them, pastors are going, you know what? Let's try it. Let's, let's get into that realm. Let's step into something new. While some in the church are going, I can't believe that. Get those goggles off their head. I can't believe it. Turn the computers off. Listen, you got to understand something. This is the new reality. Whether you like it or not. Liking it or not liking it isn't going to change anything. And so what are people saying? There's even articles. I can't believe. What are these pastors doing? They're going after the lost where they are. That's what they're doing. Well, I don't agree with it. Well, that doesn't really help the gospel. That feeling that you have, that feeling that you express, even as I'm describing this, is exactly what Jesus is talking about being an old wineskin. You're not ready for something new. You, those folks that have goggles on in the virtual world, they may never, probably will never walk into a church building like this. And over the years, every generation of the church has reached people where they were. In the book of Acts, what was that? It wasn't the metaverse. You know where they reached people where they were? On the Temple Mount. They went up to the place of worship of the Old Covenant to reach people that were up there. And so we can stand as a church community, real judgmental and finger-pointing, or we can ask the Lord. We can ask the Lord, would you recondition us, Lord? Would you recondition us so we could be used in the current culture that we're in. And I don't know what that might look like. It may have nothing to do with the metaverse. I mean, I think of another feeling that comes up with churches, just, just music, just the style of music that's being used. You know, all of us, when we were saved or raised in a Christian home, have music that we're attached to that really has great meaning. Like I was saved in the 90s, so there were certain songs and genres in the 90s that played a very special role in my life. A real special, it's how I raised my kids. A lot of them could hear those songs and they were listening to them around the house, in the car, have a real special part. But, but if I introduce them to you, they may not have any meaning to you. You would listen to them and go, oh, and I saw them, but it's not very singable. And it's like, oh, that, the rhythm and whatever. You might be experts in all that, but it may not hit you well. He's like, I don't know, I don't like that song. And, and you just, it doesn't have any meaning to you. But I'm up here going, what do you mean? It doesn't have any meaning to you. What kind of Christian are you? That's an amazing song. I, I mean, we, you can see how we've all oh, so much conflict instead of just saying, no, there's music in every generation. I, I think in the church, a big one in the church is, I don't like that new song. I want to sing hymns. Yeah, because hymns are something special to you. But a lot of people growing up in the church didn't sing hymns. They don't know about them. 
They're even sometimes hard to sing and hard to remember. But for you, they're important. And, and so you, you say, no, I won't be in a church unless we sing hymns. And I know Pastor Ian, from time to time, will include hymns as the Lord leads him. Because they're beautiful and wonderful. They speak of, many of them speak of great doctrine. They, they speak of, but, but you know, not all hymns are theologically accurate. Did you know that? They don't always reflect, like, like when, when the, the old hymn that says, on a hill far away. Do you know, most people were crucified at the side of a road, not on a hill. You're, what? Yeah. So it was descriptive language. It was emotional language. It was a beautiful language of the day. And if you go in that, man, I won't go, I, I won't sing anything but hymns, then, then you're just going to be stuck in a time where Music has moved forward, and other young people are expressing. Every new generation has a new expression. And let me just ask you this. You may still be unconvinced. You go, no, I'm a him, him, him. Okay, so what did real true believers sing before hymns were written? Are they okay? Is it okay for them that they didn't sing the songs that you were born into or that you grew up with? So instead of having an either-or, you can approach, hey, Lord, I'll just have anything you have for me. I just want to grow in grace. I want to be more usable in my life, not less. I don't want to hold so fast to my opinions that it makes me unusable for the kingdom. Because you find yourself in a place of complaining. Come back to Acts 6 now. You find yourself in a place of complaining. You find complaining puts you in a position of being unusable. Now remember, this is a time, Acts 6, when people are selling their property. Nobody told them to do that, but they're just so filled with love. They're selling everything they have, bringing it to the apostles. It's being distributed. There's great love, great appreciation, but it didn't last very long because right here, right here in Acts 6, complaining started. All this distribution, everything that's free, all the help for the widows, there is a perception and perhaps a reality that... Some are being neglected. Some are being neglected. Notice it says that as the disciples are more uh, multiplying, there arose a murmuring. So that word murmuring means to complain. It, it can also mean to grumble or to say something under your breath in a low tone, kind of like a mumbling, complaining. And, you know, Acts chapter 6 wasn't even written when social media existed. Can you imagine what this would have looked like with social media? I don't know if you signed up for this, but I signed up because I want to know what's going on in my neighborhood. I signed up to this thing called Next Door. Oh my goodness. It is complaint, Facebook complaining on steroids. It is unbelievable. The next door folks that, whew, man, I can't believe my neighbor, he has a broken wood in his fence. He's such a horrible neighbor. Of all the planks, one of them is broken. How could he let that happen? I hate my neighbor. That's real help for the gospel. Why don't you just fix it? It's on his side. All right. Complaining just puts us at odds right away. Because, I mean, if your neighbor has a broken fence, you could fix it as a gesture of love. If your neighbor has kids that play, you can fix You can let the kids play as a gesture of love. But no, there's now outlets where we can express every negative thought and emotion 
that we could ever have, and it gets worse and worse and worse. It is the reason why I got off of Facebook and why I turned off notifications of next door. I mean, it is out of control. And the sad thing is, many believers are more concerned about their fence than the soul of their neighbor. And you don't think that's going to have an effect on our community? You don't think that's going to be in a place like complaining, whether it's under your breath or it's open for everyone, doesn't progress the gospel. It just doesn't. It doesn't help you become a better follower of Christ. So here they are. And this is not just, in verse 1, this is not just an argument between widows. I want to draw out for you, there are two categories of widows here. And it's there for us, Hebrews and Hellenists. And let me say that the division is superseding how much they have in common. They actually have more in common than they have to complain about. The both groups are women, so they share that in common. Both groups are Jewish. These are all Jewish believers. They share that in common. Both groups share a deep wound together and hurt as widows. But what they're arguing about is how much stuff they're getting. And the distinction is a difference that they have. And I'll explain it to you. The Hebrews, again, these are all Jewish women. The Hebrew widows would have grown up in a home learning the ways of Judaism and speaking Hebrew. That was their culture. It was a, a Hebrew, strong Hebrew Jewish influence in these Hebrew widows. The Hellenistic widows would be a group of Jewish women that were raised with the culture. Remember, what's first century? Romans are ruling the world, ruling, ruling the area of Israel. But while they're ruling, the Romans would adopt the local culture. What's the local culture? Greek. They live in a Greek culture. And even Jesus taught in the Koine Greek language. The New Testament was written in Greek, because it happens in the first century Rome where Greek culture. So, so Greek culture had influenced these, and they would live as Hellenists. Anytime you see the word Hellenist, it speaks of Greek influence. And so they would come from the early dispersion, and they absorbed much of the Greek culture into their lives, where the Hebrews resisted much of the Greek culture. And because of that, now they're at odds with one another, and there was neglect, perceptions, maybe even real mistakes being made that brings this murmuring and complaining. What's unfortunate is they just didn't bring it to the people that could help. They didn't look and say, you know, we, I think we do have more. How about we help you? Because that's what's happened earlier. What was happening earlier is everybody's giving and free and loving. But now these outward distinctions are causing division, just like today. It's nothing unusual. It's happening today. So here's what happens. Verse 2. <clears throat> then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, who may, whom we may appoint over this business. But we, verse 4, will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So a problem arises. There's a couple of things I want you to understand about this problem, or about problems in general. If you're taking notes, number one, problems are normal. It is not an abnormal thing to experience problems. To experience problems at work, to experience problems in your family, 
to experience problems in your church, to experience problems on next door or whatever it might be. It is not unusual. It's not unusual. Problems are normal. Number two, problems are common. You know what that means? That means all of us in this room have our own issues. Anyone want to amen that? I didn't hear anybody agree. All of us have our own issues. All right, some of you, you're doing much better than we are, but we all have problems. We're all going to go home to problems. <clears throat> we'll probably walk out to the parking lot, and the car is a problem. Yeah, we all have problems. They're common. Problems actually are something we share, something we all can relate to. I mean, that's a point of connection with someone. If someone will tell you about their problems, that's why one of the entry-level conversations that you can have with an unbelieving person, with a person that doesn't love God, with an atheist, with somebody that's super angry at God, whatever their state, one of the introductory conversations you can have is something along these lines. Is there anything in your life that I can pray for you? Most people will share something with you. And you know what they're sharing? Their problems. And if they go, I don't believe in God, well, then you can change the question. You don't have to be all upset and offended. You can change the question. If praying for them doesn't work, try this question. Is there anything I can do to help you? It's a powerful question because there could be something that you could help with in the name of Jesus Christ that becomes a bridge into someone's life. Problems are common. And thirdly, I want you to know that problems are opportunities. I really want you to understand that. Problems are opportunities. Because problems will move the hand of God as you become desperate in prayer, asking God for help, asking God for wisdom. God will move in the midst of problems and he will give you the solution you need and want to bring him glory. And that's a great example with these leaders. There is a problem that's brought to them that they hear of and their solution, I believe, after prayer, is to gather everyone together. And, and here's a few things about this church, the early church, that I, I think are very important. And also some, the, the way that we apply things here. This is one of the principles that we have here. The leadership here, number one, they face the problem directly and biblically. And you happen to be in a church where we as a leadership team seek to face the problem directly and biblically. That, that means that we are not going to sweep it under the rug. That means we're not going to ignore it. That means we're going to, not going to pretend it wasn't true. That means we're not going to do things so there's an appearance. We're going to deal with whatever we need to deal with biblically. We're going to let the Bible guide our decisions. We're going to want the Bible we're not going to passively, aggressively deal with stuff. We're, we're not going to pretend or neglect. Our heart as leaders is very similar here. There is a real problem. How can we respond to eliminate that problem and minister to the people involved? And then secondly, I want you to notice there, the early church leadership, the apostles here, they also faced the problem practically. God is very practical. He's very reasonable and logical. They deal with it practically by calling people together and going, look, you guys are going to understand something. The first thing they say in verse 2 is, it's not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. The problem that's before us 
is not a problem we should ne neglect God's word in prayer to go solve. And now, you understand something. It's not, they're not saying it wasn't desirable for them to serve tables, because they did. It's not that it wasn't desirable that they didn't love widows. They did. What, what was not desirable is that they had a priority in their life that they needed to be faithful to. And their priority was the word of God in prayer. Why? Because in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, what do we learn? The early church grew in strength and numbers and unity. How? Acts 2.42, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in prayer, in fellowship, and the breaking of bread. The apostles had a unique role, even today as pastors do, in the church of feeding the flock of God with his word. That is a unique role. And it's not desirable. It's not the right choice. And how do we apply that here? I think that this is very applicable in my own life personally as the pastor of this church because I can say to you that it's not desirable for me, it's not wise for me to leave the word of God in prayer to take care of all kinds of little things that happen in the church throughout the week. And this sometimes frustrates folks that are connected to our church, maybe even you. Or you call the church and you I've got to meet with Ed, I've got to meet with Ed, I've got to meet with Ed. And the response is, I'm sorry, Pastor Ed's not available right now, but we have 13 other pastors to serve you. No, 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 it can't be in the third. Those 13 are worthless. I have to have Pastor Ed. And they try to patiently help you. No, he's not available. This is not that he can't meet. This is the 10th call we got today of someone wanting to meet. Like it's not possible. But behind the scenes is a personal commitment that I've made to the Lord and to you. And I'll just say, this is what we got. It's not desirable for me to leave the word of God in prayer. But at the same time, you got to understand, I love the pastoral ministry. I, I love to visit. I love to have lunch. I love to have phone calls. I, I love, I love hospital visits. I love the pastoral ministry. So even in my own life, my own schedule, I rearrange my schedule to, to make myself more available for those things, not less. But I don't shift my priorities. My priorities must be for prayer and the study of God's word. Now, let me just say, if my job was only sitting in an office all by myself every day, reading the Bible and praying, I would want two of those jobs. I love that. And I wish that's all I did. It's like, all I have to do is this, I'm sorry, do not touch me. I'm in my ivory tower, praying to God and reading the Bible. I wish. But actually, I don't, because I want to obey what God said. And I love serving the Lord, and I love serving this church. I love when I have opportunities. I can't do them all. And as the church continues to grow, less and less. But I love the opportunities to minister. I love answering email. I love phone calls when I can. I love it. But if I choose not to be in the Word of God in prayer, the whole church suffers. The whole church suffers. I mean, that's why guys today will go to INeedASermon.com, GiveMeASermon.com, I can't find my sermon.com, I didn't have time for a sermon.com, and download something that someone else put together, microwave it, and deliver it on a Sunday. Why? Because they haven't been praying about the church. They haven't been praying about the needs of the church. They haven't been praying for all the prayer requests that come through. They haven't been reading their email. They haven't been involved. And, and I, they'll have to answer to God to warm up some message for their church. No, what God wants is for a pastor to devote himself 
to prayer and the study of the word. Like he says in verse four, to continually, this was their role, this was their responsibility, continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And so what? What do they do? They say this work needs to be spread. There are people that are gifted in this community of believers that can serve the widows. Find them. Those that notice, and we're going to get into this in later studies, but in verse 3, find men of good reputation, find men full of the Holy Spirit, and find men of wisdom so they can be appointed. And this is a principle in our church, and I share this with our staff all the time, all the lay leaders, you know, it's just, there are hundreds of people, hundreds upon hundreds of people that serve the Lord through the life of this church. And, And this is what I like to share. I like to share We, the word we, is the language of ministry. It's not I. It's not Pastor Ed. It's we. Collectively, collectively, we get to serve the Lord. Now, I know I get the emails. Thank you, Pastor Ed. Thank you for the teaching. Thank you for Grace FM. I came last night. There were four notes on my desk of people writing notes from all around the country. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And to those, I I respond and say, you're welcome. Isn't God so good? But it's a team. It's not Ed. Now, I'm the mouth, right? I'm the mouth. That's kind of, I've been a mouth my whole life. So God just goes, I think I can use that mouth. And he saves me and I'm the mouth. I get to communicate. God is sovereignly and graciously giving me the gift of pastor, teacher. I receive it. I'm the mouth. So as the mouth, you get a lot of attention. But you know as well as I do, the mouth is not the most important part of the body. There are other parts that are far more important and far more necessary for your life. There are things that are unseen. Remember, Paul used this very example in the book of Corinthians. He says, not, not, not everybody has the same role in the body, but the whole body's important. But I think of the vital organs. You know the vital organs? The ones you can't see? The, the ones you don't know about? You don't even think about? I mean, you, don't, you didn't wake up this morning, thank you, God, for my spleen, oh, for my liver. You know, and, unless you're having a real difficulty medically, we're not thinking about our vital organs. But without our vital organs, we don't exist. And I think about in the life of the church, without our vital organs, many, most are unseen. There there is no ministry flowing from this church. There is no life change without the vital organs. It's so important because the danger for the pastor is to do everything by himself. Sometimes they do it because they're control freaks. Sometimes they do it because they don't know how to delegate. Sometimes they do it because they don't obey the Bible. The Bible says they're not supposed to do everything by themselves. Seek out from among you men, and in many ways women, filled with the Holy Spirit and wisdom. This is where in Acts chapter 6, you might have come from a church where that emphasizes the office of the deacon, office of the deacon. I don't really see an office of the deacon in the scriptures. I see the, the, the ministry of deacons and deaconesses as the service ministry of the church, which means we're all deacons and deaconesses. That you don't aspire to an office and a title. I've been really meditating on it this week too, where titles don't make a leader. God makes a leader. He's the one that enlists us. He's the one that chooses to use us. And so here's where we get the office of the deacon, if you came from a church like that. Here at Calvary, we just say, hey man, we believe in the priesthood of all believers. We believe that God, you should use your God-given gifts for his, for his glory. We believe you should move forward so that we represent the fullness of the body of Christ. And we'll be there soon enough because we're going to go through in a few weeks, we're going to go through all the spiritual gifts again in Romans so that each one of us 
will be either reminded or taught for the very first time how God has uniquely gifted us for his church. But I'll tell you, the devil loves to attack pastors sometimes by overloading them. And a pastor will get caught up in all the little administrative details. He'll be out visiting day and night, doing all the biblical counseling, all the biblical discipleship, doing everything. But that leaves him no time for study and no time for prayer. No time for preparing a message for the congregation. And the sheep of God suffer because of those bad decisions. But let me tell you even greater, a pastor that chooses to live his life like that, his family also suffers because it happens to the neglect of his family. Instead of spreading the ministry and allowing the team, the we part of the body, support him, he takes everything and does it himself and the family suffers. And that's why you see many pastors involved in pornography, many pastors quitting, many pastors saying, I don't want to do this anymore. Because let me tell you, the ministry is hard enough with we. You try to do it by yourself, it's impossible. It's impossible. I even learned last night, a brother was here visiting, telling me about a church in another part of the state where today, this morning, my heart broke when he was sharing with me, but today, this morning, the pastor, or I should say the former pastor, is going to stand up before the congregation and confess to the church that he was caught soliciting a prostitute. I mean, how does that happen? There's a lot of answers to that. I'm involved in a lot of pastors' lives, ministering to them. But I can tell you, although all the answers, one of them has to be a neglect of the fear of God in his life and a surrender to the Holy Spirit leading him. And now his family, his church, his community is going to suffer greatly and are weeping right now. It probably already happened. Weeping right now about what the future might be in the man that they trusted. And you know, the first question out of my mouth was not how's the man. I said, how's his wife and his kids? How are they doing? Who's ministering to them? Who's caring for that hurt and shame and guilt that they're going to be carrying? Listen, sin is serious, church. And the way that we stay away from sin is to be men and women of God's word, yielded to the Holy Spirit. So yes, there may be times where another pastor, trusted brother here will minister to you, but that's okay. They're good, godly men. They're full of wisdom, full of the Holy Spirit. There may be a lay leader here that, that, serves, that works 40, 50 hours a week, but they also serve you and minister to you. That's God's call upon their life to serve and minister to you. There may be opportunity. When you call, say, hey, the past somebody might tell you, just come. He's at, uh, he's at the church after any service. You can talk to him right there. He'll be standing right in front of the stage, and I'll be here to talk to you. And I'm often the last person to leave, like I was last night. One of the last people to leave, ministering to the people that are here. You bet. I love ministry. I love shepherding the flock of God among me. I love serving this community. I love serving other churches. I love serving our church. But I know this. I can't do everything. And I know this. I can't reprioritize my life differently than God has already prioritized it for me. Do you know what's true for you too? It's true for you too. You do not have permission to reprioritize your life away from the way God prioritized it for you already. And you go, what are you talking about, Ed? I'm not a pastor. No, no, no. For all of us, what did Jesus say? Seek ye first. That's a word of priority. You can do a lot of things in life, but the first thing you do Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and these things will be added unto you. 
And so here the church is dealing with the problem. We'll see, you can read ahead, that they'll solve it. They'll bring peace again. The leadership is good. You want to be in a church that has this kind of leadership? I believe you are in a church. If Calvary's your home, you are in a church that, that we seek through prayer and submission to the Lord to live out the book of Acts in the 21st century. But knowing this Bible study goes on around the country, I think we're on in 30 different states now, even around the world. You, wherever you are, whatever state you are, you need to be in a church that is committed, committed where the leadership is committed to the word of God in their life and also in your life. And by the way, this is something Moses dealt with in Exodus chapter 18, remember? His, his father-in-law comes to him and goes, what is your problem, dude? If you keep leading like this, you're doing everything by yourself, you're going to wear yourself out and the people. And Jethro tells him, look, this is what you need to do. Appoint elders, um, take care of it, spread it out. That's what he does. And so what was the Bible for the first century believers? What were, remember if they were continuing steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, what was the Bible they were using? The Old Testament. So the principle now living out in the new covenant was already stated in the life of Moses, and now it's being lived out in the early church in a new way. And it's a beautiful thing to see the church fill with men and women serving, facing problems as opportunities, stepping in to love and serve one another, loving their community, not, not, not getting caught up with all the difficulty of the problem, but rather getting caught up with the opportunity of the problem so that the Lord can work on your behalf. So Father, we pray today as we turn our hearts and attention to you on a beautiful, beautiful day where we celebrate motherhood. I think of the, what a great example and a picture you've given us with the servant's heart of moms. And we thank you for that. So many of us have benefited from that in a variety of different ways. And I pray today, God, that you would lead us and guide us as a church to be all that you desire us to be, that we would continue to grow in your grace and knowledge, that we would continue to grow numerically, but not for the sake of growth, but for the sake of reaching the lost, equipping the saints, and seeing our city transformed by your grace and mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. Or visit us online at calvaryaurora.org. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.